Well, if you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we pick up again with our series on Acts, and and we're going to see Paul uh, this morning, and for the last time we'll see him for several weeks. Uh, We will not see him for another, uh, really like, 11 years, actually. Not not for us, right? Uh, But 11 years in the chronology of the Bible. We we have to remember that Acts is a, a story, a true story, it is an account of the growth of the early church that that covers a bunch of years. And so Paul is going to be in the background for a long time before we pick him up again in Acts 13. I'll say this again, which I said last week. A lot of times we confuse the name Saul and Paul. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Greek or Roman name. It was not that he was before converted Saul and then after his conversion, Paul. Uh, And the way that we know this is in our text today, he's converted and he's still called Saul. And in Acts 13, we have the Holy Spirit referring to him as Saul, calling him into, uh, into ministry. So, once he goes to Greek-speaking lands, he uses his Greek name. And that's why we, we know him more of as Paul. And I'm going to forget that we're talking about his old name right here, and so you're going to hear Paul a lot too this morning, I'm afraid to say. Uh, So this morning we are in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, "Is, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Christ. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your word is trustworthy and true without error and authoritative over our lives. Uh, Father, may we find the foundation of our lives once again in you through your word this morning. Grow us in your grace. We ask for anointing for the preacher and hearer alike. Help us in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are some pretty powerful things in this world, aren't there? You know, think about the power of a riptide. My father almost died in a riptide when he was in his 20s, I believe. Many riptides are too strong for even the strongest swimmer to survive. 
or the power of tornadoes that we saw all too well last week, or the power of an earthquake. Who can withstand it? That's mighty powerful. You know, man has made some pretty powerful things as well. You know, like big trucks that can move houses down the road. Isn't that amazing to see? Or we might say, uh, you know, tomorrow I'm getting on a plane and flying to St. Louis. It is a hunk of metal that is going through the air with people trapped inside. That's pretty amazing, right? Or a nuclear reactor. You know, a modern average nuclear reactor can power a city of 750,000 people just by itself. That's a lot of power. But of all those things that are powerful, you know, the things that are the most powerful in this world are not external things, but things that touch the heart. Right? We can say on the negative side that the powerful things, like the bondage of sin, the tyranny of shame, right? that, that loop that plays in your head that you're worthless, or the power of guilt, Whole families have been ruined by guilt, right? It gets to the heart. But then, of course, on the positive thing, the positive side, the power of acceptance, the power of belonging and being known, the power of love. Even, even the use of the word love. Men, have you told your brides you love her today? It's a powerful thing. Of course, God is the most powerful. He is almighty. He has all of the might. You cannot measure His might, His power. It is limitless. It's not that He has a bajillion jewels of energy, some inexhaustible thing, but, you know, one day it would run out. I mean, like, there's no limit to His power. It cannot be contained, measured. And this is seen in our hearts by the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is stronger than the mightiest bomb ever created. Stronger than anything that man has ever conceived. And God uses the word power to talk about it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. My friends, the power of the gospel is inexhaustible and unbelievable. And it is by the gospel that we are transformed in conversion and continually transformed to be made more like Jesus. We see this in our text today. When we last left Saul, he had been on the way to Damascus. He was not a friend of Christians. He was seeking to drag them off from Damascus to take them back to the high priests in Jerusalem, where they would stand trial and many would die. We know that more than one person has died so far. Stephen has been martyred. But later in Acts 22-ish, when Paul is talking about his conversion experience and what he'd been doing, he even says that he approved of the death of them. So we know that more than one person had died. Many would be bound. And so he had gone to, to do just that, to seek to wreak havoc on the church in Damascus, just as he had done so in Jerusalem. 
But along the way, he encountered Christ. It wasn't that he saw him over on the distance and said, hey, let me go check that out. It was instead that the Lord God, by His grace and mercy, intervened rather in a spectacular way in Paul's life, calling him to salvation, calling him not to just salvation, but also to be an apostle, especially an apostle to the Gentiles. He is then uh, blinded by this light. Christ appeared to him in a light. He spoke to him. And then he is sent, led uh, into Damascus by a disciple named Ananias. Excuse me. He's led into Damascus, and then Ananias comes and finds him at the direction of the Lord. Sorry. And Ananias lays hands on him as directed by the Lord. He receives his sight again. He is baptized, and he makes a public profession of Christ. So then what does he do? I mean, you ever thought about that? I mean, his life has been transformed, and so what does he do? Well, he immediately goes into the synagogue. And what does he do? He starts preaching and proclaiming what has happened to him. What had happened to Paul? Like we, we, we see the externals. We see the external report of what happened. But, but you know that he was blind for three days. What in the world was going on in his heart in those days as he fasted and prayed? See, the first thing that is transformed in every believer is the heart. Just like we talked about in the children's sermon Biblically, the heart is the place or seat or soul or of the emotions, the will, the relationship with God. It is really who we are. Jeremiah 17.9 says some pretty harsh things about the heart apart from Christ. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's beyond comprehension how bad it is. And we don't have to look far into history and even to our own hearts to see, wow, that's pretty bad. Who could have thought that up? Well, it came from our hearts. See, before conversion, we are in a state of sin and unable to do anything spiritually good towards our salvation. Indeed, our hearts are hell-bent, heading towards hell and hell-bent on doing those things which are opposed to God. And with Paul's pre-conversion life, we especially see this, right? I mean, he was looking to kill the folks. He was looking to destroy the church. It's easy to look at it when it's that obvious on the outside, right? But the outside was coming from the inside. The outside was coming from the heart. And we know a little bit about Paul's heart. He tells us of his pre-conversion state over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. This is what he said about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What was he trusting in? That's right. Someone actually spoke in the Presbyterian church. Praise Jesus. Let's get more of that. (laughs) Uh, He was relying on his works. His heart was relying upon his performance. Where was his righteousness? Well, he didn't have any. But he thought he had it because of what he did and what he held to in the sense of seeking to destroy the church of God. This is is the danger of outward religion, right? There are always outward manifestations of true religion, of true Christianity, of a heart made new. but, But let us be careful 
lest we trust in outward religion. But something happened to Paul when he was converted. His heart was transformed. And the Holy Spirit, in in what's called effectual calling, the Holy Spirit showed him the weight and filth, not only of his outwardly wrong actions, but even the tainted nature of his good actions. Martin Luther used to say, well, he used to, but he's dead. He said when he was alive, he said, we must repent also of our damnable good works. Right? I use that not in a profane way, but even our good works are tainted and damn us to hell. Scales fell not just off of his physical eyes, but also the eyes of his heart. And you know, only, only Jesus can do that. The Holy Spirit must be the one to take the scales of our heart. Or in the language of Ezekiel 36, take out, transplant. Take out the old heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh that we might be enabled to live after Him. That He might give us His Spirit. Well, Paul is transformed, and I love the Philippians 3 passage because it it then goes on to say what happened after his transformation. Verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What in the world could change this man's heart to go from trusting in his actions to destroy the church to submitting to the lordship of Christ and having a new heart? My friends, it was the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. See, Paul counted all these old things as a loss. In fact, the Greek, the English translation here is not strong enough. It says he counted them as rubbish. The Greek says dung. And the Greek is actually stronger than the word dung. Words that are not appropriate to utter from the pulpit. That's how strong that language is. He looks at um, the things I found my righteousness in before, that's, 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 that's on the negative side. I have a friend who... Uh, who's helped me get my old Chevy truck running again. You know, you shouldn't let those things sit. Uh, he helped me put a new starter in, redo the points. I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> seal up a... I want to be real clear. Don't, don't be impressed by my knowledge. I wrote these things down. Seal up a vacuum leak, rebuild the carburetor, put a new gas and oil in it, clean off the push rods, whatever they are, the whole bunch of other stuff I don't understand, right? The truck, my friends, has been transformed. It was stuck in my garage. It wouldn't do anything. You turned that key and it was bad. It's been transformed. It runs again. Why does it run again? It basically has a new engine, right? This is what happens when the gospel invades our hearts. What does the gospel say? The the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 Timothy 1.15. That's the good news of the gospel. I'm the foremost. I am the sinner. 
And Christ came into this world to save a wretch like me. Right? And so when we accept the good news of the gospel that we can't earn our salvation is given to us, merely we have to receive it as we are enabled to by the Holy Spirit. It transforms us. It makes us new. This is what happened in Paul's life, and it's what happens with us. Right? He goes from, from, from the very thing that he thought was blasphemous, that Jesus was the Son of God, to now that's what he's preaching. The Lord had transformed him. Has he transformed you? We need transformation when we become Christians, right? I think, um, you know, if you're a member of this church, you have come before the session and profess your faith and love of Christ. And, uh, and so praise Jesus that the Lord has transformed you in conversion. But don't we need ongoing transformation too? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, as one commentator says, the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A2Zs. Like there are more things that flow out of it. There are important things to learn. But it is the basis of not only our salvation in conversion, but our ongoing growth in Christ. See, oftentimes we accept what, Paul, what happened to Paul. We receive salvation. It is a gift. And then we put the gift to the side and say, okay, now it's my turn. And now it's up to me. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because then there's no assurance. There is no assurance of salvation if our walk with the Lord is based on performance. Does it take effort? Yes, absolutely. But it is all upon the grace of Christ. See, Paul continued to be transformed. There's a lot here that's uh, not in the Acts account that we find later in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians, where where we learn that there's a period here uh, after he's in Damascus, he stays there for a while, and then he's driven out into the desert, much like Jesus was. And he'll be in the Arabian desert there, uh, getting to know the Lord better. And then he'll come back to Damascus. And that's when he is um, made to be the object of persecution. And I love this part. His disciples lowered him out of the hole in the wall. Did Did you catch that? His disciples? The people he had led to the Lord? Already his apostleship, people are recognizing it. And they lower him down and... He makes his way to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem, things don't go much better, which we'll get to in a minute. You know, the the transforming power of the gospel, the good news that (coughs) Christ came to save us, you and me, it changes us from the inside out, and our whole lives are turned upside down. In losing our life, we gain it. In trusting in Christ, we renounce our dependence upon the works of the flesh. And with the indwelling Spirit... In our lives, God begins to change those old desires. Right? We have those desires that are still according to the flesh. There is a part of us that is still calling us away from God. But with the Holy Spirit, He grows us and continues to transform us. That He begins to change those old affections. Are they still there? Probably, long term, but they get less and less. And we have more and more victories over them. We are enabled more and more to die to those things and to live unto Christ, being renewed in the whole person after Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That there is hope and there is the promise of change. Do you need changing? i got things that need to change in my life. Lord, help me. In fact, as we grow as Christians, we see more and more of our need for Christ, don't we? The areas that we thought, oh, I'm good in that area. A couple years later, I think, 
Oh man, that's just terrible. We see our need more and more for Christ. And when we see our need more and more for the transforming work of Christ, we are more dependent upon Him and we have a greater understanding of His grace. Well, with a transformed heart and a transforming heart comes a transformed profession. Right? Profession, it means what we say. We have professed our faith earlier. A profession of what has happened to us and is happening to us. The basis of profession is the idea of allegiance. We will be in allegiance to one of two people, to ourselves or to God. That's it. That's it. To ourselves or God. Now, in conversion, we declare our allegiance to God, and then oftentimes we take it back. Every day we fight that battle, don't we? Where is your identity? If I were to give you a three and a half, three by five notebook card and gave you 24 hours, said you can use the smallest fine point pen you can find with the magnifying glass, I want you to tell me who you are. What would you say about yourself? As we see with the old Paul, it would be full of accomplishments. Look what I did. What, what would we say after conversion? Our identity is ultimately in Christ. This is our profession. And so what does Paul do? He doesn't keep it to himself, does he? He doesn't keep it to himself. What did he do? Immediately, he goes in to the synagogues. And he begins to proclaim the very thing that he was going to Damascus in order to destroy. And they can't believe it. Verse 21, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They can't believe it. Have you ever seen someone converted and you couldn't believe it? So there was a guy in high school. He was crazy. I, I, you weren't like that. I know you never knew anybody like that. But this guy was crazy in high school. And I didn't hear of him for years and years and years and years and years until I got married. And one day, my lovely wife was talking about this guy that she'd gone on a mission trip with. And she said his name. I said, who, who did you say? No, nah, no. Nah. Is he from Montgomery? Yeah. No. That must be his brother. Turns out, he went on that mission. You know what he is now? He's a PCA pastor. <laughs> He's just like Paul. He's just like me. Jesus is in the habit of transforming ugly, sinful, wretched sinners like me. And you. And see, and when that happens, we don't keep it to ourselves, do we? Well, we shouldn't. We do, but we shouldn't. This is what Paul does. He immediately goes in. Now, that would have been a lot easier for Paul to just say, I just don't want to rock the boat. These guys, they think I'm here to kill them. <laughs> I think I'm just, going to, I'm just going to just step out of this one. It'll be all right. What does he do? He wades right in. You know, if Paul was trouble before he was converted, it kind of seems like he's still kind of a troublemaker, isn't he? Willing to shake things up. Well, he, there's persecution. He escapes. He heads to Jerusalem and it's the same thing there, right? He gets there, and they don't believe him there either. Barnabas believes him and takes him to the apostles, and we learn from Galatians that specifically he took, them, took him to Peter and to James. He'll stay for a fortnight for 15 days, and then because of persecution again, he'll be taken to Caesarea, 
and then he'll be sent off, which is a port city, and sh uh, shipped off to Tarsus. Well, he'll spend the next seven or eight years, and we know nothing about his ministry there. We know that he did a lot of ministry there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, somewhere in there, when it has the account of all the bad things that happened to him, it's likely that a lot of that stuff happened in those seven to eight years before his first missionary journey in Acts 13 happened. So he, he wasn't just hanging out, waiting for the Holy Spirit to call him into his first missionary journey. He was, he was doing something. Well, he could not keep the transforming nature of the gospel to himself. Why do we? I think it's because we forget how transforming it is. There are a lot of reasons we don't share the gospel. But I think we forget the power of the gospel. That it is the power of God for salvation. It's not my power. The power is not in my words. It's not power is not in my ability to convince you. The power is in the power of the declared word as the Spirit works through it. Well, thirdly, Paul joins immediately the community of the transformed. Verse 19, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. When God transforms us, we belong to the body of Christ, the church, which is made up of other transformed people. We are a group of transformed people and being transformed people, and we look forward to the day where we are fully and finally transformed when Christ comes again and makes all things new, including our hearts. Until then, we are called into the community of faith. He immediately seeks out the disciples. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, what does he do? He immediately seeks out other believers in Christ. There's an implicit question here. Can you be a Christian and not be part of the local church? I don't mean the Presbyterian church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church. Just the church. Well, that's a tough one to answer, isn't it? Can, can you be a football player and not on a football team? That question doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? Can you be a leaf and not be connected to a tree? I, I don't know. Can you be a piece of wood on fire and not be part of the fire? See, we are, we are been transformed and we've been transformed. And when we are transformed, we belong to the community, to the communion of saints. We are called to be part of the local body where we spur each other on for good works and remind ourselves and others about the good news of Jesus. Well, we have seen that God transforms our lives. He begins in the heart. We have seen that we have a, a transformed profession and we ought to be quick to tell others about the transformation we've had and the ongoing transformation. Let me tell you what the Lord's doing in my life these days. That's a great way to tell people about Jesus. And that when we become Christians, we belong to the transformed community. But one really important thing is that our hope is in Christ, not only in this life, but also in the next. See, for Christians, He transforms death itself. What in the world can transform death? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Rising from the grave, for the believer, He has defeated death. It's common to be afraid of death. As believers, you know, we might be fearful of the moment, of the experience of death. Right? No one wants to go through the process of dying. But as believers, we don't have to be afraid of death. It doesn't have to be a shadow that hangs over our existence every day of the life. That is so common in our culture. 
And the COVID-19 experience really exposed that, didn't it? It's, it's good to take precautions. Please do, yes. But there's an underlying inability of our culture to deal with the topic of death. Because for the Christian, we must know that our lives, to the dying breath that we have, the number of our days, it is in the hands of Almighty God. See, unbelievers will die twice. There's first the first death. And then there's ongoing conscience, eternal death in hell. But for the believer, Christ has taken the second death for us upon the cross. So that upon our death, we are immediately ushered into the presence of God. Oh, may that day come soon. Don't you long to be with Jesus? And until our dying day, we serve Him. Until the dying day, we trust in His ongoing transformation. And we look for the day when He transforms everything. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. It is our prayer, O Lord, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Until then, continue to transform our hearts that we might trust in the gospel all the more, daily, daily, hourly, calling upon your name. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.